0: Sleep, go to sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Boss? You've lost half your body sleeping. Uh,
1: I sleep pretty hard.
0: Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Hey, it's Brian. And hey, it
1: is Murdoch. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. We are the Story Guys at gmail.com connects you to us, and you can let us know what rock and roll rumor you want us to tackle. This week's email has an alliterative subject line, which I like. It's broke Bowie with... Two question marks. Do you do you, does that ring a bell? I'm not familiar with that at all. I've heard it said that during David Bowie's Diamond Dogs tour or the soul tour in 1974, they actually there is a distinction. He changes the tour in the middle. We'll talk about it. Bowie went almost entirely broke. This seems bizarre to me. If he did go broke, what happened? Yeah, because like that era of Bowie. Yeah, it's the really it's when the career is taking off. Uh, now, we've talked about Bowie a lot on the show before. But I am happy to do it again. (laughs) At your request, dear audience, I am happy to jump into 1970s Bowie. So let's go. Let's dance. Let's dance. Uh, So I will say we're headed to one of those 1970s stories from the music industry that just reminds us how unscrupulous people can be. But there's a light at the end of this tunnel. So don't get too hopeless. Uh, Bowie pulls out of this one with some panache. But uh, no spoilers. Okay. Let's start with a vocab lesson. Can you define the word impresario? Oh,
0: definitions. <laughs> no, I don't. It's like uh, no, I no. I, okay. mean, that's, I guess it's is it is it a negative character?
1: No, so it's I like I sort of thought that too, but actually the the definition is just quote a person who organizes and often finances concerts, plays or operas. So basically, just Weird. a producer. Yeah. Uh, but for some reason, whenever you read about this guy named Tony DeFreeze, who's going to be a big part of our story today. Uh, this is a word you hear thrown around a lot, impresario. And it's it's a fancy word because it comes from the 18th century Italian opera world. The word impresario actually comes from the Italian word for an undertaking, and that's what it was. So in that scene, rich noble people would hire someone to put on a show from top to bottom. Composer, orchestra, singers, set, all uh, of it. Uh like art was so different. Being the impresario, if you could pull it off, could have some really nice rewards. If you, if you look at the history of Italian opera, there are these stories of folks who are able to rise up from basically from being peasants and then they become impresarios and they take on all the stress and risk of it and then they excel. And Mozart actually did a farce. Title uh, translates to the impresario and it was meant to satirize that whole situation in the wow. upper echelon of society, right? Wow. I learned something today what about this dude, Tony Defries, right? And what? why does he get that name applied to him? Well... Is he
0: is he old as hell? He's got to be old as hell. He's old now. Right?
1: He's old now. He's still alive. He's 80. 80 years old. All right. Let, let me... Speaking of that, let me start by telling you something I discovered that I find pretty incredible. Not only is he still alive, he is still doing his best to control the narrative. Tony Defries in 2023, has a podcast.
0: Well, what's the podcast about? Is he like saying, like defending himself, being like a good so, guy? Sort of. Like in
1: 1972, he started these companies under the name Main Man. And we're going to talk about that. And there is now in 2023 a Main Man podcast. Uh, it's <laughs> very well put together and produced. And as you might guess, the guest and narrator on an outsized number of these episodes is indeed Tony, Tony Tony DeFreeze. The show is currently in its 59th episode that posted last month. And let me just read you a few of the episode descriptions from recent months. Tony DeFries explains why David Bowie visited New York. Tony DeFries marks the 50th anniversary of the release of Hunky Dory. Tony DeFries Uh explains why he selected RCA for David Bowie's New Deal in 1971. Sounds like a lovely guy. (laughs) I mean, he's a calculating guy, right? We can at least say that. Further illustrated by the About page on the podcast website, this is... This is where we really start the deep dive. Let me let you hear how Tony DeFreeze describes his relationship with Bowie. All right. The main man group of companies was, at first, a first of its kind rights management organization formed by entrepreneur and impresario, he uses it himself, Tony DeFreeze, in 1972. It supported and helped to develop the careers of various artists, including David Bowie. Tony was the first to recognize David's real potential and agreed to work with him. He began by extricating David from his management, recording, writing, and publishing contracts. We'll talk about all this. And recovering some some of his Mercury albums, which later became the joint property of Main Man and Bowie, and subsequently became the sole property of Bowie. He's being very careful with how this is all worded. As a result, David became one of the very few artists, writers, and performers who owned and controlled his entire catalog of work from that era. Tony created... Tony created a unique new structure that would secure future rights ownership and allow David the freedom to explore his creativity, while Tony focused on the business affairs. So, to hear Tony tell it, this was a very healthy and functional partnership, until next paragraph. And this is still the about section on Tony's website in 2023. Oh, oh, this is still the about oh, section? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Tony's vision. I thought maybe we'd split. Not nope. there. Wow. Tony's vision for Main Man and his aggressive promotional and marketing focus drove David's transformation into one of the biggest rock stars in the world. By 1974, David was enjoying enormous success, but problems caused by his growing reliance on drugs during the recording of diamond dogs and the supporting tour caused a deterioration in the working relationship with Tony that would eventually lead to a breakdown in 1975 when the parties reached a settlement that determined the ongoing management of their joint interests. That was written by a lawyer. Oh yes, it was because Tony DeVries is a
0: lawyer. He's a lawyer, right? Okay. Yes, that makes
1: sense. Uh, if we leave it up to the Tony DeFries and his podcast spin machine, uh, the answer to the question that we were asked, what, why did Bowie not have money in the 70s, is because he was doing drugs. Uh, he's on the dope. Yeah. So, 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 I mean, basically, in 2023, he is blaming David Bowie's drug habit for the fact that their relationship fell apart. I mean, that's exactly how that reads, which is okay. startling when you dig a few layers deeper. So we're, we're going to do that. And, you know, it, it's, like, interesting, though, because normally, with the stories we discuss on this show, we don't get to see active campaigning from the other side.
0: No, like, Peter Grant didn't have a PR agent. You right. Know. Like, this dude is doing active
1: PR 50 years later. David Bowie died while Obama was still president. So, like, this is yeah, seven years later, yeah. and the dude is yeah. still going after this, making sure the spin machine is working. And this is sort of, you'll, you'll learn in this story, this is how Tony DeFries operated the whole is time. Is he
0: a narcissist, or is oh, it definitely. really about,
1: this guy stole, stole a lot of money from him? Here's where I want to start with, with Tony. We actually need to talk about somebody before Tony. There is, there is a precursor to Tony DeFries, and that is a guy whose name you might know, Alan Klein.
0: Yeah. Oh. The. Oh. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> so short. Like people say it was Yoko. It's her fault. No. It it's might like, have been ah. Alan Klein. It might have been Alan Klein.
1: Uh, yes. The shorthand here is the Beatles. Uh, Alan Klein, most famous for managing that band after Brian Epstein, Paul McCartney was not into him. Uh, this becomes a huge matter of contention within the band. The band's relationship with Klein will end in a massive lawsuit. Uh, it ends up settling for like $5 million even though he was trying to get like $19 million from them. But still, Lennon will actually say, even in the height of their disagreements, Lennon will say, quote, Paul might have been right about the fact that they shouldn't have trusted Alan Klein. Uh, it, it, like, the, I'll just Instead of giving you all the details, because that's not what we're here to talk about, I will give you this little anecdote. In 1978, there is a TV parody made, you, I bet you watched this, called The Ruddles." All you need is cash. And... <laughs> There's a character in that. They, they There's a character based on Klein. And what's he like? It, well, he's played by John Is Belushi. It,
0: oh my gosh. Yeah, I haven't watched it in so long. And listen, everybody, you got to watch the Ruddles. It's <laughs> so lunatic funny.
1: To, to widen the lens here a little bit on Alan, just know that he had a track record of coming in very aggressively initially in favor of an artist as their representative and that's why he would get these jobs and then after a while it would become clear that he was structuring things to his own advantage and he did this repeatedly and he did it to some of the biggest names of all time of course the beatles he also did it to the stones which is ballsy to do yeah. it to the beatles and the stones yeah, he did it to was- sam cook sam cook was like the first one and there were te- there were technical ways that he did it he made middleman companies that would hold the assets we don't need to get into all the details but just know he was good at manipulating things to his favor. In fact, in fact, I had sort of forgotten this. Do you remember like two years ago, the headlines about the Verve, that band, finally getting the rights to Bittersweet Symphony? Yes, I do. Yeah, yeah the reason totally they weird. didn't have them until two years ago, even though that song came out in 1997, was because of Alan Klein. Good good job for him. So the, here's, <laughs> here's, here's the reason I'm forcing a crash course about this guy on you right now. Uh, in the 1960s, Tony DeFries early in his career was working with a producer named Mickey Most. And through this, we'll end up working with Alan Klein. He gets to watch this guy. He gets to learn from him and he is obviously taking notes. So there is an argument to be made that
0: without Alan Klein, there is no Tony DeFries. What well, makes sense if they're almost like this, like this Holy Trinity of like Peter Grant. Yeah. Yeah. And Alan Klein. Yeah.
1: So yeah.
0: Yeah. And, and it's, become obvious that those guys take their money. How does he start to do this? His his first foray
1: into this is with photographers. He meets this dude, Don Silverstein, who'd been taking photos of Jimi Hendrix. And Don Silverstein keeps finding his photos of Jimi Hendrix being used in places that he didn't know they were going to be used. And so, as I pointed out... Tony DeFries is a lawyer, and so he talks to Tony and explains this. And Tony goes and helps him figure out how to enforce his rights. And he realizes he's got basically this market that he can he can wiggle his way into here to work specifically with photographers on rights to their own photos. Um, and so he'll end up actually creating a trade organization for photographers, the Association of Photographers. And, and then he meets this guy Larry Myers. Uh, When he's working with Mickey Most, that guy's an accountant. He's a lawyer. They start a company together. And this is why I think he gets this title impresario because the company they start is like a 360 shop. So instead of just saying, hey, we're a promoter or hey, we're a a manager or hey, we're your lawyer and your accountant, they basically are trying to bring the whole package. Because remember, I said in in Italian opera, it was the impresario was the guy who got everything together. They call it Jim Music Group, G-E-M, and they bring a band into the whole process and the first band they bring and the first song they launch Edison lighthouse love grows where my Rosemary goes. listen we're just a couple of guys who love power pop and i this was a great place to play that song
0: <laughs> yeah <laughs> has and, no bearing on the rest of the story but you're welcome yeah i, get, I gotta play that song after this show oh my man. god I it's so
1: good dude it's so good edison lighthouse is not the big act that breaks uh gem music group uh but Jim music group does pretty well and in 1970 they meet david bowie so let's let's pause here and get some context on where Bowie is at this essential juncture, like what's happened. So we've, we've done some of this on the show before. We've talked enough about him to have covered Davy Jones and the King Bees in that period. Um, that's early 60s. He, he doesn't find a lot of success for a long time. Uh, he takes a stage name because of the lead singer of the Monkees, Davy Jones. Um, so he becomes David Bowie, names himself after the Bowie Knife. That is true. That's um, That's right. He crazy his stuff is like he's playing a 12 string guitar. He's doing folky stuff. And did you know there is a song in his catalog called the laughing gnome on which they speed up his voice so he can be the voice of the gnome.
0: (laughs) You can never uh, blame the guy for like not having this best super original ideas, right?
1: Even when they don't work. I mean, it's like actually if you think about it in the context of Bowie makes perfect sense. There's always a theatrical element, right? So if it's if it's not a gnome. Why not try being a mime? Did you know in 1969 he toured with Mark Boland's Tyrannosaurus Rex incarnation of that? And, no, he toured and he did a mime act, not music. That's oh, I've heard about this, but I didn't know. So wait, so who else is on the... I don't know. Who, I don't know who was in between. I actually didn't see that in what I read. But yeah, he was act. He was act one, and Mark Boland
0: was act three. And you know, there's there's like a Mark Boland David Bowie sort of thing. rivalry yeah, that, that goes for a while. Yeah. Talk about how the the mimes are never going to get their day. It's like the mimes will always have to open, you know, no matter what. <laughs> they don't get to be the headliner. Uh, yeah. It's like there's, there's like no solo headlining tour of like the mimes. <laughs> uh, so, of course, this does eventually
1: turn into this idea of like theatrical elements bleeding into the performance. It, it becomes what does help Bowie become Bowie, right? I mean, that's he creates his characters character, Ziggy Stardust. But there's some other key things that happen around this time that will lead him to Tony DeFreeze. And one of them is his association with another person. I'm going to go ahead and jump to something I think I have buried at the end of of the notes. But there is a quote where David Bowie has said the worst decision he made in his life was this business decision with Tony DeFreeze. And then he quickly says the second worst decision he made in his life was marrying Angie. (laughs) <laughs> this this is where Angie comes into the picture. Angela Barnett. They get married, they meet, oh, and they marry within a
0: year. That is just a burn of burn, burn, burn. Wow. Yep, that's bad. Uh,
1: marrying Angie. Women who quickly marry and then exert obvious influence over their rock star husband's tend to drive managers nuts. And at the time, the manager being driven nuts by this arrangement is a guy who's working with David Bowie named Kenneth Pitt. There's a really good piece by Tosh Berman on Please Kill Me that you can find in the show notes. It's a tribute to Kenneth Pitt and the influence he had on Bowie. And this relationship will end in messy legal stuff, as do most of the management contracts that Bowie gets himself into. But what this piece makes clear about Pitt's influence on Bowie is that he indulged this exploration into all these aspects of the arts right he wasn't like david bowie you're going to be a big rock star he said david bowie sure theater sure books sure the singing gnome like you know whatever you want to experiment with is good by me and he was showing him these things and and letting him get swept away in the world of the literary and the theater and all that sort of stuff
0: wow and what a huge inspiration that had to be on bowie
1: well right and without that nurturing the world probably wouldn't have gotten this version of bowie right but This is what he couldn't Uh, do. He couldn't nurture, but he couldn't sell. And what Tony DeFries did was step in and sell Bowie to the world after Kenneth Pitt had sort of grown him from the ground. In fact, there is a Kenneth Pitt quote that describes Tony DeFries as, quote, a man with legal knowledge who set up a business wherein he had a product to market called David Bowie. I mean, that's a cynical statement, but it's pretty true. Pitt was just not successful in selling Bowie, and that is the one thing that Tony DeFries is very successful at doing. I'm so ready to hear how he ripped off Bowie. You remember, right, that Bowie is struggling for years. It's easy to forget this now, but Bowie doesn't just, like, decide to be a musician in 1969 and then become a star in 70. Richard Foote puts it this way. Back in late 71, early 72, David Bowie was still relatively unknown. Despite being in the music business for an endless seven to eight years with four albums under his belt, Bowie had just one hit to his name, Space Oddity, and that's 69. And that's worth pointing out, right? Because under Pitt, he does score with Space Oddity, but Pitt can't make anything happen after that. So they send him out on a tour. They put him in front of a confused and sometimes very aggressive audience who doesn't understand the rest of the catalog, right? Like they're just there to h- hear space out of it. They can't figure out a follow-up wow. single. There's a fight where Pitt wants one thing to be the follow-up single. And then Bowie writes a song for Angie. So Angie wants the Angie song to be the follow-up single. And so there's a whole thing about that. So at the time he's on a subsidiary of Phillips, uh, like Mercury, I think is owned by Phillips at the time. So he goes to Olaf wiper. Who's the wow. g- the general manager at Phillips, Mercury, Olaf wiper, first of all, has an amazing Disney villain name, even though he's not a villain in this story.
0: It, he's definitely a Scandinavian, maybe. He he
1: gets the credit mostly, if you look him up in rock and roll history, for breaking Space Oddity in Britain, because it had failed. And he got a hold of it when he took over at Mercury and was like, we can make this work. And so he pushes it really hard in Britain. So he he is like, "Well, you can give him some credit for Bowie's success. Bowie goes to Olaf Wiper and he says, Pitt is holding me back like I could be successful. I feel like I'm not successful. And part of the reason right now is is my manager. And so wiper goes, listen, if you need to get out of that contract, you can call my lawyer. Here, here's a few lawyers names, but I use this guy named Tony DeFreeze. He's my lawyer call oh him and gosh. he'll get you out of the contract so <laughs> it literally starts as david bowie calling da- tony defreeze and saying hey bro i need you to help me get out of this contract and tony defreeze a man who does not miss an opportunity turns that in to becoming the manager of david Bowie.
0: oh my gosh
1: man. who does this remind you de- of who else from history would seize on this sort of opportunity Oh
0: gosh! Somebody, well, somebody that, who may have just, been
1: may have been associated with one of the biggest uh, musicians of all time. There may have been a movie about him last summer. Uh,
0: I know why people really should hate that Elvis movie is that they gave Tom, uh, they gave Tom Parker a narrative in the movie. Like, <laughs> the, the <laughs> Asshole doesn't need a narrative in the movie. Fuck him.
1: Also, the it accent, is, <laughs> the accent that <laughs> Hanks does the whole time. I'm like Tom, you're better than this. Yeah. stop it.
0: Yeah. They, the, they said the searchers on HBO and and Tom Petty called him like it was a, it's just VO and Springsteen. But Tom Petty said, you know, he was a carnival merch guy like, you know, buy a hat, yeah. and buy pens. And yeah. I mean,
1: check stuff. out our episode, Colonel Tom Parker versus murder. We go very, very deep into all of that background on Colonel Tom Parker. But here's why I bring him up in several places. I came across the fact that Tony DeFreeze was never shy about comparing himself openly and talking about his aspirations to be like Colonel Tom Parker. Yeah, he was a prick. Like what? (laughs) And and this guy wanted to do business like him. He kept telling Bowie that he, Tony DeFreeze, was the missing ingredient. He's like, listen, you've had eight years at this. And you know what you haven't had in eight years? You have not had me helping you. I can put your career on an upswing. I can make you, he would say to Bowie, I will make you the next Elvis. And it probably played well with Bowie because not only was Bowie an Elvis fan, you know they share the same birthday. Oh yeah, the total weirdest thing. There's a description uh, from a 1972 uh, article in Rolling Stone written by a guy named Timothy Ferris. And this is how he describes Tony Defries. Quote, his long-pointed nose is out of Dickens, which, first of all, shouts, (laughs) shouts to that rock writer who was like, I'm just going to throw, you know, Scrooge into this. Uh, His Uh, long-pointed nose is out of Dickens. His complexion is an uneven white. He favors fat black cigars, and when he smokes one, he resembles a ball of oatmeal on a stick.
0: Everything is amazing.
1: <laughs> that is That's, Pulitzer wish, Prize winning wish, rock journalism right there.
0: I wish Rolling Stone had things like that. That'd be great. No, they they used to have that, but th-
1: that description: long pointed nose out of Dickens, uneven white,
0: black cigars.
1: That that sounds like Colonel Tom Parker.
0: Well, he always he always had a cigar for sure. I know, and he was a hairy. He's a big hairy dude. So
1: we'll go to a slightly nicer description of of Tony DeFries and his handling of all of this. Larry Myers, his GEM business partner, he put it this way. DeFries absolutely believed that David Bowie was and would be the greatest star in the world, and he acted accordingly. I like that quote because the back half of it explains a lot about DeFries' approach. Quote, he acted accordingly. This is Richard Foote again. In Tony DeFries, Bowie had a manager who was now singularly focused on ensuring that he got the media attention he needed and cleverly used hype and marketing to give the perception that Bowie was a star,
0: even when he was basically penniless. Wow. He, I, I'm so – I can't believe the guy – try to be tom parker it's so weird. i mean the fact that he openly tried to be tom parker and
1: maybe tom parker's reputation in the 70s wasn't shot to hell but i thought it was he basically takes the approach the image is everything right so no one is going to believe you are big shit unless you act like big shit so he begins what i refer to this is not in the in anything i've read i like to refer to what happens next as operation bowie is big shit What does this look like in practice? First, first move of the new manager, new contracts. So this is where DeFries excelled. He had this reputation for renegotiating contracts. So he goes in and basically gets Bowie out of all of his existing contracts. Management, recording, publishing, gone. So he goes to Mercury. Mercury's like, he owes us an album. And DeFries is like, cool. Uh, He's going to give you a really bad album. So you should probably just let his contract expire. They're like, what do you mean? It's like, no, it's going to suck. You're going to get a terrible album. So wouldn't you rather not waste the money? Not only do they surrender that part of the deal, they'll surrender the ownership of the material that he'd released under them. Yeah, unheard of. Unheard of. Totally ridiculous. Defries clears the musician's debts to the label and then gets the rights to everything. And GEM then will sign them to an exclusive contract. Will sign Bowie to an exclusive contract. And when the Mercury contract was terminated, this now means that Defries can sign a new record deal for David Bowie. And this is, I mean, if you read anything about Tony Defries written by anyone, the one piece of credit that he will always be given is that this is the best thing he did this was his big power move he got rca to relinquish the publishing bowie and Defreeze outright own all of the rca stuff and he's already gotten the stuff from mercury so at this point bowie has everything in his catalog
0: yeah and then uh, what what's that left turn at albuquerque where bowie got ripped off that's well, what I wanted. To okay, know. so... I, I want first, Spaceman. I want 25%. That's the first deal for me. Oh, 25% would have been
1: kind. Uh, so it, it it's worth pointing out, though. I do want to... Real quickly. Wow. It's worth pointing out that this whole negotiating and making sure that they get the rights to everything looks brilliant now because we know what happens with David Bowie. But remember that he still wasn't successful. So he is... Just leveraging his own gusto, Tony DeFreeze, he's walking in saying, this guy's going to be the biggest guy in the world, and I know it, and I'm betting on it, and so I'm getting – I want the rights to everything. It could have gone badly. I mean, there's a version of this, right, where he gets all this stuff, gets all these rights, and then really doesn't make much money because David Bowie fizzles and you know goes into theater and does community theater for the rest of his life or something, right? So he he's controlling the destiny of, of – both himself and this guy, this 23-year-old kid, David Bowie, that he now has as Putty in his hands. I mentioned that 1972 Rolling Stone piece by Timothy Ferris. Here, here's a little bit more from it. When okay. I interviewed DeFreeze at the Plaza Hotel in New York, he turned on his own cassette tape recorder when I started mine.
0: <laughs> <laughs> He's what an amazing guy. Unbelievable. Oh, my God. Wouldn't you be so weird to meet a lawyer and he puts on his cassette player, too? Oh, my God.
1: And so then he says things in this interview like, Bowie is setting a standard in rock and roll, which other people are going to have to get to if they want to stick around. I think he is a 70s artist and everybody else is a 60s artist. Bowie is going to be the major artist of the 70s. This is in, like, 72. so. He is just blindly preaching what he wants people to believe. And it is crazy to look back because he wills. I mean, it's almost like he wills this into existence, Bowie can't do it by himself. He's got to have somebody pushing and driving the bus. He was trying for eight years before this, whether or not you get to the end of this episode and think Tony DeFries is an absolute piece of work. It's hard not to give him a little bit of credit. And that's mostly when you read about it, people be like, well, he is pretty much responsible for David Bowie having a career even though what he did was insane. So move number two, move number one is the record label stuff, right? So that's the first thing he does when he takes over. He, he gets him out of the contracts. He gets some new contracts. The second thing is he's, he's like, dude, we got to break you in America. I think
0: we talked about this on the show before. Have you ever seen the movie Stardust? Oh, wow. I sure have. So, I, don't, I haven't thought about it in forever.
1: So Stardust is this movie from uh, like not very long ago. That is about Bowie going to America so tony defreeze is in that movie and the actor who plays tony defreeze in that movie like i i looked him up and i was like who, who played tony defreeze and i was like oh i know that guy that's the guy who on my wife's favorite show supernatural plays death <laughs> so just just imagine <laughs> they're like how are we going to cast tony defreeze let's get the guy who who plays the grim reaper oh wow but, that movie I, I do not think stardust is a very good movie i will say that um i, I do not necessarily yeah. recommend it but it is an interesting look at this story which is the trying to break bowie in america
0: just how hard that is
1: at first
0: yeah hey brian real quick aside have you seen moon age daydream that's so i actual I've documentary not seen that yet that's that's only been out for what six months yeah it's, it's supposed to just be amazing and beautiful So
1: breaking Bowie in America, this is a move that will actually change DeFreeze's business arrangements with the company he created, GEM, He'll move to America too, and he will start to concentrate most of his focus on Bowie. And he will start this company. Instead of GEM, he will start a company called Main Man. And that is the company that we referenced earlier that still, though I don't know if the company exists, they still have their IP on the internet and they're sitting on a URL on a podcast. So this operation, make Bowie big shit. You couldn't just be big shit in the background. This is background stuff, right? Getting him in America and getting him to radio stations and doing all that. That's, like, that's the hard work to get you know the like the machine moving, but you also have to do stuff in the public eye. There is this great story back to this Elvis thread, this Elvis and Colonel Tom Parker's thread. There's a great story about Defries arranging for Bowie to see Elvis at Madison Square Gardens. He actually wow. flies him from London in 1972 to see Elvis, and he 72. He okay. has him meet up with all of the brass at RCA, and he's very late. So he, and they're very close to the stage. This is from a 1996 Bowie interview. Elvis was a major hero of mine, and I was probably stupid enough to believe that having the same birthday as him actually meant something. I came over for a long weekend, and I remember coming straight from the airport and walking into Madison Square Gardens very late. And I was wearing all of my clobber from the Ziggy period and had great seats in the front. And the whole place just turned to look at me, and I felt like an idiot. I had brilliant red hair, huge padded spacesuit, and those red boots
0: with big black soles. (laughs) I
1: wish I'd gone for something quiet because I must have
0: registered with him. He was well into his set. Wow. So did Elvis notice him or... Did he get to meet Elvis?
1: I read that he was supposed to be able to meet Elvis and like RCA couldn't make it happen, which is bizarre to me. But again, Bowie's not that big a deal yet at this point. Right, yeah, yeah. And I did read an interview that I think was from 2000 where Bowie makes some joke about Elvis definitely noticed me and was pissed or something. But I don't know. That's inconsistent. (laughs) I think he's enhancing the story. That's a good example of Tony DeFreeze being like, we're going to make an entrance. Like, go as Ziggy into an Elvis show, right? here. Here's another one. If you read about the origin of the song Cracked Actor, you're going to find it attributed to this week that Bowie spent in L.A. in late 72 around this same time. Tony told him, you have to spend like a star to become one. So the Bowie entourage, roadies and all, include, I think Iggy Pop is involved, they're all there. They're at the five-star Beverly Hills Hotel. No one had enough cash, right? So they're all living on like the record label's credit. And so they they can't take cabs, so they have to charge limos to room service. Um, there's afternoons at the pool. There's nights at Rodney's English Disco on the Sunset Strip. And even some of them end up going to the Scientology Celebrity Center. Like, there's a whole lost oh, week or oh, two wow. in LA. And, yeah. and, and they're living as decadently as possible because, again, Tony DeFries wants them to make this splash he wants people to notice them and how about this how about merch merch in the show notes look this up this is amazing there is a ziggy stardust doll photo and it is the weirdest looking thing i've ever seen
0: <laughs> this was wait. oh my gosh.
1: rumored to be a fan item intended for christmas in 1972 reportedly four were made from scraps of original ziggy costumes and they were distributed through the pr team uh, for promotional purposes, they were going to make a final for sale product, but it never ended up happening.
0: Uh, but yeah, that, that's the difference uh, with him and Tom Parker. Tom Parker would have sold those dolls. Oh man. my God! Right? Figured a way.
1: So this was the original idea, though. So what Tony Defries wanted, which never came to be, was an actual pull string where when you pulled the string. Bowie said, Wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. What? What?
0: Uh, is that really a thing? That's a real thing, yeah. Is that would, really what it was He, was, he was, it was gonna say that? Yeah. Woo. There's a there's some <laughs> innuendo there from a doll talking to you ladies. <laughs>
1: All right. Also, did you know about the musical? The, this is sometimes marked as one of the the falling out points, the beginning of the end between these two guys. At one point, Defreeze is like, you know, there's like I, I read that quote where he's talking to Rolling Stone and basically saying like David Bowie's going to be huge. And at one point in that he says, you know, he's going to be in film like he is a multi-talented guy. We're not keeping him just to music. And so there's these different false starts to try to get him in film. And at one point they're going to do a musical about Marilyn Monroe. Hmm? Yeah. So they, these are all great examples of, of the decadence, right? And then it culminates with this concert tour. And the question we were asked alludes to this, right? This Diamond Dogs tour. Here are some numbers. Two months of rehearsals required to launch this tour. Elaborate set and props required for the show reported to cost $275,000 per set. That's like a one and a half million dollars today in today's money. Uh, The tour was going to do five nights in each city, but then they abandoned that. The tour started in Quebec as the Diamond Dogs tour, but Tony DeFreeze kept sh- kept telling people listen you got to call it the year of the diamond dogs tour when you speak to the press like he was very it was all about image and all about saying the same thing and the right thing right but we actually did radio and tv commercials that would air in market before the show for
0: each individual market could you imagine that today hello i'm glenn danzig danzig's playing down at the municipal auditorium in nashville like <laughs> i was trying to imagine just him with a weird creepy backdrop with, like you uh, know they used to do this, right and I think we're all lost without everything with Ticketmaster. I am glad Ticketmaster is going to get hit in the face with all this. I, I feel like they really, really are. But I maybe, wish we maybe had that's what we'll return, we'll, we'll, just, yeah,
1: yeah. we'll return to. We'll just, yeah, we'll return all the artists are hawking their own tickets and they're doing it on TV. I want to see yeah. Kip and, Winger on a <laughs> play at 200 seat clubs. Hit it for
0: a heartbreak.
1: I mean, you you point something out, right? Like, what we're talking about with Ticketmaster in a lot of ways, and there is a great episode on Ticketmaster if you're have if you new to the show, um, but e- these things all have precedence in a lot of the ways that managers and companies and entities controlled entertainment in the 70s. I mean, in the 60s, 50s, 60s, 70s, right? It, the the chains started to come off a little bit in the 80s and 90s, but... I, you know, we still see remnants of this even in things like Ticketmaster. So let's talk about this tour. The Diamond Dogs tour runs until August, and then they, they they're set to take a month off so that Bowie can uh, work on some new songs. He's he's in this creative period, and when he gets something going in his brain, he wants to work on it. This is what will become Young Americans. The story goes that somehow during this break is when Bowie suddenly gets some insight into how badly. He had misunderstood the deal. He had struck with the freeze. So Mm. before we get into that, let me explain to you that that is why this tour, in the question we were given, it was said Diamond Dogs slash Plastic Soul Tour. After this break in August, it becomes the Plastic Soul Tour. He gets rid of all the expensive stagecraft, and he goes out basically with a bunch of black guys, and they play songs... that are going to be on Young Americans that he wants to, because he's he's into this idea of, of soul and soul singing and soul music. People are a little upset because they've been hearing reviews of the Diamond Dogs tour that had these crazy elaborate set pieces and was one of the more expensive tours launched that decade. And now he's just coming out with a band and a lot of the songs he's playing are new songs. Most of those songs are
0: kind of smashing. I like them, so...
1: Let's talk about this deal. This deal that he signed. This is what you've been waiting for.
0: Yeah. It takes him until this point to realize
1: he's halfway through the Diamond Dogs tour and someone points out to him, Bro, I don't think I don't think you signed the deal you think you signed. So this is what I read. The naive twenty three year old Bowie who signed that deal in nineteen seventy thought that he was a fifty percent owner of Main Man. So, I mean, I guess Main Man comes a couple of years after the initial deal. So he, saw, he signs the management deal with GEM. But when Main Man happens, he thinks that he has 50% of Main Man. What he doesn't realize is that that is not the case. He is an employee of Main Man. And up to this point, he was just blissfully unaware because all of his expenses were being paid by Main Man but he didn't really own anything because all of the expenses were paid out of his share. So the 50% figure in his brain, that's what he's getting from everything. But all of the costs of the business come out of his 50%. And guess who gets it's the other
0: 50%? Fat Tony. The law's That's right. So, the lawyer
1: structured this thing to say, we're going to cut it in half, but expenses come out of that side. He basically had no money because I just described to you how they were. So, let me just give you a list of what has to come out Uh, advances, royalties, concert revenues, uh, hotel stays, uh, food. All of that stuff that I just described to you comes out of Bowie's side of the equation, staff salaries. Main man's running costs, travel, hotels, parties, recording costs, musician fees. He doesn't see anything he, he until gets after that's no, he paid. He
0: gets nothing.
1: Gosh, what a prick. Oh, dude, do you think that's bad? Remember how DeFreeze had landed that lucrative ownership deal with RCA?
0: He oh, wrote himself no, into that. So how much? What an asshole! What? How much did he write himself in for? I
1: mean, if you if you've got a good number, stick with it. Fifty percent of the RCA catalog royalties, and here's what else he wrote into it. You're not going to believe this. Even if they split, he had a ten-year window.
0: Oh gosh, how gross! That means that Tony
1: DeFreeze got money from station to station, from low from Heroes, from David Live, from Lodger, and from Scary Monsters, and from all the singles in the compilations during that period.
0: Wow. What a, just a dirty butthole. On top of this, no one's paying attention to paying taxes. So Bowie
1: ends up having to live in Switzerland for a while. Yeah. Which, you know, not uncommon with rock stars in the 70s. So, especially British ones. David referred, like I said earlier, to this agreement. With Defreeze is the biggest mistake of his life. But I promised you a happiest ending to all of this. A lot of rock stars fall from grace or discover massive injustice like this and it ruins them. They never bounce back. But damn it, David Bowie, he bounces back. A couple of decades later, after he's clear of all this, he still doesn't own it, right? He still only owns half of his catalog. Tony DeFries owns the other half and he decides he wants it. But to do that, He's going to have to buy it. Tony DeFreeze says he'll sell it, but he's going to have to buy it for a massive amount of money. Do you remember? I'm trying to think how old you were. You would be old enough to remember this. 1996, 97. Oh, yeah. Sure. Do you
0: remember Bowie Bowie
1: Bonds? I don't know. To buy back all of this from Tony DeFreeze, he needs a huge amount of capital, like $55 million.
0: He, and he, he raises money.
1: So he and his financial manager meet up with this banker named David Pullman. And he's like, listen, all you have to do is treat this like the stock market. We will securitize the IP against future earnings. And so in 1997, Bowie bonds begin as a stock of $55 million, and they're on the cover of the Wall Street Journal. (laughs) And here was the deal. If you invest in the bonds you would get a share of the interest of David's royalties for the next 10 years. Fixed it at a return of 7.9%. It couldn't, couldn't be oh, wow. worse than that. And, and this sounds like innovative crowdfunding, but it didn't take a bunch of people. Prudential Financial, the insurance company, sees a good deal and knows when to take. <laughs> it. And they buy all of it, $55 million in $1,000 bonds, and David Bowie what? gets to finally buy all of the shares back from Tony DeFreeze, and he gets his entire RCA catalog back.
0: Tony got outlawed in a big-ass way. Oh, dude, listen to this. Fun little addendum. DeFreeze is such a tool that
1: he continues to try to make money off Bowie's songs after the fact, and in 2011 will get sued by Capitol Records for copyright infringement because he's misusing the material. Uh, $9 million payout he's supposed to make, and to my knowledge, to this day, has not made it. That ruling came down like over 10 years ago. And meanwhile, he's paying someone to clean up his website and basically say that David Bowie's drug problem is what cost them their relationship. Oh, it's so weird, It's crazy. And, you know, it, it leaves us with this conundrum, right? Would David have found success without Tony DeFries? I don't know that he would have. And he definitely wouldn't have become a brilliant groundbreaking businessman. But damn it, that guy sucked.
0: I'll take half, and then your half has to come out of a different half that's over here in a different part of the spreadsheet. Uh, well, with Star Starboy,
1: all of the things uh, that you know that were negative that he took from Bowie. I will say one thing: Bowie was able to produce out of all of this, you know, lots of good music. Um, but you can directly attribute uh, the song "Fame." <laughs>
0: What's your favorite belly song? Do you have one? Yeah, I do, and it's just because of how old I am. Um, it's uh, Let's Dance.
1: Oh, it's it's not the Gnome song.
0: No, no, <laughs> and I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure Stevie Ray Vaughan plays on Let's Dance.
1: Uh, yeah. Wow! If you've got something you want us to talk about, if you got. A question you want us to research it's we are the story guys at gmail.com and uh, until next time murdoch what should people keep doing
0: keep telling stories Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference, or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.